0: This week, Judge Polster denies motion for summary judgment in Track 1 opioid MDL cases. Malincroft responds to advisor hire reports and then settles Track 1 cases with two counties. Treasury Department and HUD release plans for Fannie and Freddie. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: And welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York.
0: And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, credit research director Mark Fisher and senior reporter Jim Holloway review the current state of the onshore natural gas industry. It's Sunday, September 8th.
1: Last week, Judge Dan Aaron-Polster denied several motions for summary judgment filed by pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies in the Track 1 opioid litigation rejecting the defendant's arguments regarding causation, conspiracy, preemption, limitations, marketing of generics, quote, de minimis liability, effective controls against diversion, and expiry of statute of limitations. Additionally, Judge Polster denied a motion for summary judgment filed by Track 1 Plaintiffs Cuyahoga and Summit Counties to declare the, quote, opioid epidemic to be, under Ohio law, quote, a public nuisance. Each of the judge's opinions is limited to the context of summary judgment, that is, whether the facts were so overwhelmingly in favor of the movements, here the defendants, that a trial in front of a jury was not necessary. In each case, he determined that the moving parties had failed to meet that burden. Uh, Most notably, the judge denied the defendant's potentially dispositive motions with respect to plaintiff's proof of causation. The manufacturer defendants argued in a motion for summary judgment that, quote, allowing this case to proceed to trial would be unprecedented and would contravene bedrock principles of tort law, because plaintiffs could not show that each defendant's alleged misconduct caused, quote, medically unnecessary and or excess prescriptions in the Track 1 counties, or that, quote, These excess prescriptions proximately caused harm to plaintiffs. Judge Polster disagreed, finding that plaintiffs had presented enough evidence of causation on summary judgment to send their claims to a jury. In denying the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment on public nuisance, Judge Polster concluded that, quote, Whether the opioid crisis constitutes a public nuisance is a question that must await full airing of the facts at trial. According to the counties, no reasonable jury could determine that the, quote, opioid epidemic is not, quote, an ongoing public nuisance under Ohio law, citing, quote, statistics and testimony pertaining to the types and extent of harm attributable to opioid-related problems in each of the counties. The defendants responded that, quote, the existence of an opioid crisis in and of itself does not constitute a public nuisance because the analysis must also consider the conduct allegedly creating the nuisance. This time, Judge Polster agreed with the defendants, quote, he said, Plaintiffs fail to persuade the court that separate adjudication of the closely connected harm and conduct elements is either useful or advisable. The public nuisance issue, like the manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies' defenses, will go to a jury. One of the defendants, Mallincrot, responded to a news report stating that it had hired Latham and Watkins and Alex Partners and is exploring the possibility of a bankruptcy— Saying at an investor conference that the company would not comment on, quote, speculative rumors, only adding, quote, we hire advisors for all different types of things all the time. Also at that Thursday conference, the company said that it continues to look for ways to separate its generics business and its legacy business. Then on Friday, the company announced a settlement in principle to resolve the track one opioid cases with the two Ohio County plaintiffs.
0: Shortly after market closed last Thursday, the U.S. Department of Treasury and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, issued their respective housing finance reform plans pursuant to a presidential memorandum issued in March. The Treasury plan proposes reforms that would end conservatorship of the GSEs upon the satisfaction of certain specific preconditions, establish a revised regulatory framework for the recapitalized GSEs, and, quote, facilitate competition in the housing finance market. According to the Treasury, this plan would address the, quote, last unfinished business of the financial crisis in a manner that, quote, preserves what works in the current system, protects taxpayers, and reduces the influence of the federal government in the housing finance system. The plan includes a discussion of specific options for the recapitalization of the GSEs, laying out the following, quote, potential approaches. Eliminating all or a portion of the liquidation preference of Treasury's senior preferred shares or exchanging all or a portion of that interest for common stock or other interests in the GSE adjusting the variable dividend on Treasury's senior preferred shares so as to allow the GSE to retain earnings in excess of the $3 billion capital reserve currently permitted, issuing shares of common or preferred stock and perhaps also convertible debt or other loss-absorbing instruments through private or public offerings, perhaps in connection with the exercise of Treasury's warrants for 79.9% of the GSE's common stock, Negotiating exchange offers for one or more classes of the GSE's existing junior preferred stock and placing the GSE in receivership to the extent permitted by law to facilitate restructuring of the capital structure. Treasury says that while the plan includes both legislative and administrative reforms, its, quote, preference and recommendation is that Congress enact comprehensive housing finance reform legislation. However, Treasury also says that reform, quote, should not and need not wait on Congress, and that pending any new legislation, Treasury quote, will continue to support FHFA's administrative actions to accomplish the objectives laid out in the plan, given that quote, FHFA already has expansive statutory authorities to implement reforms in the absence of further congressional action. Meanwhile, the HUD plan does not directly or explicitly affect the two areas of arguably highest concern to investors the so-called net worth sweep, and privatization of the GSEs. However, a number of the plan's legislative and administrative recommendations suggest the contours for how these areas will ultimately be modified. The HUD plan addresses the FHA, which currently insures more than 8 million mortgages, and the Government National Mortgage Association, or GINI-MAE, which guarantees more than $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities. Treasury's plan focuses on suggested reforms to the FHFA, an independent federal agency that acts as conservator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Importantly, rather than draft legislation, both plans are more akin to white papers, intended and structured to effectuate high-level policy objectives by directing subsequent administrative and legislative actions. Next, turning to the island of Puerto Rico, the Promisa Oversight Board on Tuesday released a letter to Governor Wanda Vasquez, Senate President Thomas Rivera Schatz, and House Speaker Carlos Johnny Mendez, warning that enacting Senate Joint Resolution 399 would be inconsistent with the Certified Budget and Fiscal Plan and would violate, quote, multiple sections of PROMESA. The Oversight Board asserts in the letter that it, quote, will uphold PROMESA's mandates. The oversight board said Joint Resolution 399, which was approved by the Senate on August 19th, purports to assign $123 million from funds outside of the certified budget to the Puerto Rico Department of Education to cover the costs associated with its special education program. On Wednesday afternoon, members of the Oversight Board met with Governor Vasquez and her top fiscal advisors for two hours, with the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment the main topic of discussion. Oversight Board Chairman Jose Carrion told reporters after the meeting that the Oversight Board is, quote, very close to presenting the plan, saying it would happen within weeks, not months. The Oversight Board chairman said Vasquez expressed concern about the proposed pension cuts that would be part of the plan of adjustment and said the plan would include the pension cut agreements the Oversight Board has negotiated, including with the Government Employee Labor Union and the Official Retirees Committee. Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Juresco, who also attended the meeting, defended the agreement with the Retirees Committee as the, quote, most fair and best possible outcome for the retirees that we can take to the court. On Thursday, Vasquez said her administration would do everything possible to minimize cuts to pensions, but added that the Commonwealth government has to be realistic about the needs to restructure its outstanding bond debt and other obligations. Also on Thursday, Sincora announced in a press release that the purchase price to be paid by Golden Tree affiliate Star Insurance Holdings has been increased by $36.5 million to $429 million, subject to adjustment. As announced last month, Star Insurance is buying Sincora Guarantee. The increased price resulted from a quote, additional unsolicited proposal, and now Sincora has agreed to end the go shop period during which it can solicit alternatives, according to the release.
1: Other top stories last week were in an abundance of caution, PGE appeals bankruptcy court decision lifting stay to permit Tubbs Fire related litigation to proceed in state court, new coverage, Deluxe Entertainment enters into RSA to swap all term loan for 100% equity via exchange offer. Prepares pre-pack filing if no unanimous consent. Fusion Connect debtors file plan, creating litigation trust for general unsecured creditors, death trap for second lien lenders. Detail FCC foreign ownership restrictions and requirements. And as always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead.
2: Well, thank you, Connor, and Kamseval, y'all. Welcome to another week of the human drama that is the Chapter 11 process. And since I'm going to be back for another segment shortly, I'm going to keep this in short and also like to draw y'all's attention to our weekly calendar published on Monday mornings, which has all this and a good deal more. So, Monday, September 9th, a DS hearing in Emerge Energy and Emission Coal, a hearing related to the enforcement of the Murray Energy sales order and status conferences in Ditec and Weatherford. Tuesday, September 10th, hearings in Bristow and Verity, confirmation status hearing in FES, a wildfire claims estimation joint status conference in PG&E. Sounds interesting. And here's something that sounds like even more fun. Senate Banking Committee will take up the lofty matter of GSE reform. Wednesday, September 11th. Said this every week for what says a while now, but Approach Resources, yes, they have a forbearance expiration. Let's see if it's extended again. There's an auction in White Star and a whole parade of omnibus hearings. Puerto Rico, PG&E, Stearns, and Zohar. In Weatherford, we have a combined plan and DS hearing. Thursday, September 12th, Alta Mesa Holdings up there in the northern stack has an RBL excess utilization bill of $32.5 million due. And there's also a final dip hearing in Jack Cooper, DS hearing in aceto and this one should also be interesting, California Public Utilities Commission voting meeting. Friday, September 13th, traditionally a day of bad luck. I don't know about that, but this weekend is tap-on-the-shoulder time for quite a few amongst us, uh, starting with EP Energy, grace period expiration on the 14th, which is Saturday. And on Sunday, the 15th, Frontier has an interest payment due on four series of, of notes high ridge has a coupon due on its eight and seven eight twenty-five. 25 jc penny coupon on its eight and five eight second liens of 25 also and that's all for now and just like hot weather in louisiana i'll be back so soon you won't know i left
1: thanks a lot jim
0: now here are mark and jim with a review of the onshore natural gas industry
3: Thanks, Alex, and thank you, Jim, for sticking around a little longer today to talk to us about energy, uh, specifically natural gas. So for those um, not aware, Jim uh, this week um, wrote a pretty comprehensive article on natural gas, uh, the current state of affairs, direct from uh, a lot of it direct from companies' mouths. So let's see uh, what they're talking about. He'll walk us through, and uh, Jim, if you could get started uh, just Providing a review of, of uh, natural gas prices this year, um, it's definitely been a, a bit of a roller coaster, and also company stock bond performance too. Please,
2: uh, sure, Mark, and and thanks ever and, and thank you, and hello everybody. As warned, I am back, and okay, natural gas. Uh, a great deal of the grief this year for the commodity began in the spring when we had a combination of record production and also fairly temperate weather, which allowed utilities to put a lot of gas into storage. Um, There's the ongoing pressure of excess gas from the Permian traded to zero to negative range earlier this year and is now looking to be around $1 discount to Henry Hub with the Gulf Coast Express pipeline coming online. So in April, we saw both natural gas futures and the equity prices of Appalachian and just gas-weighted producers in general, starting a long and very painful grind downward. So if you shorted the equity of one of those guys in the spring, I hope your boss has taken you out for a nice steak dinner. Uh, The bonds have held up, uh, I think, a good deal better, but we're still seeing Antero in the low 90s and Gulfport in the 70s, I think, for some issues unique to each company. And you know, interestingly enough, there are more people um, talking about this state of affairs.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the price of gas is only going to buy you a, a little cheeseburger at McDonald's now instead of a steak dinner. Um, so let's talk to how we uh, got there and, um, and, and these supply and talking about supply and demand um, on the supply side we have production um, you know walk us through what's been going on with the companies but then on the demand side, what I'm curious about you know I've been around uh, this industry for a while and for years and years we've been talking about these new demand drivers that are coming um, for you know natural gas LNG power plants, new crackers um, related to the uh, natural Gas liquids, and I think I I thought a lot of that stuff is actually played out. Um, So, what what are some of the additional demand drivers that the producers are talking about? How do they get out of this mess um, from the demand side?
2: You know, the, the demand drivers that the industry has, has been discussing are not fake ones. Uh, you know, this the, it's not like a pets.com situation or, or anything. Uh, the U.S. power grid is continuing to shift over to natural gas from coal. You know, according to the EIA, natural gas usage by um, utilities hit a record this year. And the liquefied natural gas export opportunity also seems to be the real deal. If you just look at the numbers, in 2016, there was less than 1,000 um, MMCF a day of feed gas into the export terminals as additional capacity has come online including the first cargo from Freeport's train one earlier this week that's gone to about 7,000 MMCF today and there's of course more capacity planned for the Gulf Coast India and China are seen as primary markets and growing markets that are going to be able to take a lot of that demand um, and it's going to continue to – it's expected if you, you know, look at research outfits like Kinsey or IHS or whoever, it's only expected to grow. You know, there's a school of thought that um, the trade war between the U.S. and China may slow down things a little bit. The FIDing of some of these projects, but there's also a good number of people who don't think it really won't, or at least not to any extent th- to matter. Um The problem is that a lot of these things have not come online quick enough to absorb the enormous amount of gas that the U.S. is producing. There was a point this year, it was almost like the stock market. Producers in the lower 48 were hitting new production records more or less every day. It peaked this year in August, I think, at about 92 and a half billion cubic feet a day. Um, This week, uh, production was around 91.3 billion cubic feet a day. And it's worth noting, this is just based on pipeline flow. So this wouldn't include any associated gas that's being flared in the Permian or the Bakken, which has also hit records this year. So really that comes down, that's what it comes down to, um, a matter of supply and just the massive amounts that. They're producing. Um, you can't help but think that a lot of the calls for from investors for in focus on shareholder returns and buybacks and dividends and curtailing production are mostly about forcing the producers to curtail production to create some kind of floor under prices. So let's move on then to
3: production. Um, what are you? You said that shareholders are, are looking for companies to uh, you know to, to put in some restraint. Um, are they rationalizing um, things? I know they made comments um, that uh, that that they would. Uh, but historically, these companies have uh, tried to spend every dollar that they can. So, you, what what are they saying now uh, in terms of? Uh, capital cuts, um, which I guess you know could lead into lower production.
2: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think just looking at the at the macro level indicators, overall North American rig count is is down to 898. That's down about 15% from last year. Um, that's a total of 160 gas rigs, which is down from 172 that we had in July of this year for oil it's 738, which is down from 784 in July, um, that said, um, you know that is a lower move, but no less an authority than Harold Hamm of Continental. Uh, notable shale pioneer has said that we are headed for a rig count of 800, and that shale producers still need to cut their output and their output. And one of the um, Rice Energy, the Rice Investment Group partners. Um, has said that it's their view and these were the people that took over EQT in the proxy fight have said that it's their view that the vast majority of the rigs in Appalachia are uneconomical. economical um, so managements of the gas companies that we reviewed as have the oil companies have made it clear that they have gotten the message and that they are doing what the market would like them to do. Um, range resources said they begin their budget planning with free cash flows a priority. Southwestern said it planned to cut its rigs to two in the third or fourth quarter from six at the start of the year. And, um, so I think the companies are doing everything within their power. Um, Now, as to when this is going to actually happen, uh, I think we are starting to see it begin to trickle lower. I think the market would like to see the production continue to come down uh, over the third and the fourth quarter, and hopefully that will bump up the strip somewhat. In the fourth quarter is when we usually get to budget exhaustion season, as well as seasonals related to the holidays. So we'll hopefully see some of the production numbers trickling down over the coming weeks. Uh, the big question is, is whether that's going to be enough. There's not a great deal of love for the sector, especially if your market cap is below diamondbacks. Um, you know, interestingly, Rystad Energy wrote in a report recently that as a group shale producers are now cash flow positive. What that means, though, is that there's even less mercy for companies companies that continue to outspend. Uh, that looks like the case with Antero, which is planning to outspend and ramp up production to fill its its, um, its firm transportation commitments. And there were some rather pointed questions from an analyst on their second quarter call about the incremental nature of some of their improvements to the cost structure. Uh, I think we're going to be taking a, a closer look at that in coming weeks. And also today, Shaw Capital, which holds around 2% of Gulfport, put out a letter calling on them to cut CapEx by even more. And even and sell a unit
3: yeah and I'll actually continue on with uh, with because we initiated coverage on them uh, this week there seems like they're trying to toe the line in, in terms of shareholder friendly activity um, for direct cash and and um, and and spending which this year is actually going to increase production. Uh, on the spending side, they did cut from, from last year, but given where commodity prices are, they'll probably outspend their, their operating cash flow, though by a lesser amount than they have in, in the past. Um, they've also tried to return capital to, to shareholders, too. Um, they are in the middle of, uh, or they initiated a 400 million stock buyback program, uh, but only spent 30 million of that, uh, through August 1st. And the reason that it was so little, it was actually they, um, they took some of that cash and they use it to buy back bonds, uh, at a discount. Um, they bought back, um, Uh, Over 100 million uh, worth of uh, bond uh, principal for um, 80 million dollars in in cash. So they're sort of trying to do both. Um, The interesting thing with them, though, as we note in the um, in the report, is that a lot of the production. Growth, or they've they've had to relative relative to historical periods, or there's sort of a normal period when inventory is is lined up appropriately. They're um, spending somewhat less on their wells because a lot of their, they're running through their inventory of uh, drilled but uncompleted uh, wells um, in the neighborhood of uh, 40 or so additional wells this year that they didn't have to drill, but they turned to to sales. And it seems like based on company comments that they're now comfortable with where that duck inventory is. So to the extent that you know, they want to continue to um, to turn wells to to sales, they'll have to to drill more relative to the number of wells they turn to sales. So we'll see how that affects the whole uh, capex versus production uh, going forward. and we'll see how the rest of the industry uh, responds to and, and whether they're true to their word in terms of uh, capital discipline. So, Jim, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a, a, a great review of um, the the space and we'll continue to, uh, to look out for further developments. Alex, back to you.
0: Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Alex Brosman.